You can go ahead and start turning to Luke chapter 14, if you have a Bible, or pull it up on your cell phone there. Um, I think for me, often the way I live my Christian walk, maybe how you, others live their Christian walk, and even how we, we teach some to live their walk, whether we, we do it intentionally or not, it's become a, a series of like check marks to make sure that we're doing okay in God's eyes. Uh, David Platt points out in, in his book, Radical, which is actually, that book is actually based primarily off the passage we're going to look at today. It's a great book if you haven't read it. Uh, he says that in America, we've created a system of Christianity that consists of a bunch of boxes to check off. And that the danger is that, that we hear the word, we hear God's word, and we say, you know, just tell me what to do. What, what am I supposed to do? And I'll do that. Or uh, we'll, we'll crave these boxes and say, man, if I, if I could just check these certain things off, just keep up with these certain things, that I know that I'm doing okay, and that God thinks that I'm doing okay. But that's, that's not the point of Christianity. And it's a habit that I fall into, and maybe you fall into as well. We've reduced our Christian faith in a lot of ways to what's convenient for us and what requires the minimal amount of effort. And so today's message is about what it really means to follow Jesus, the cost of discipleship to follow him. So last week, uh, Mike preached on the parable of the great banquet. And after that, uh, with the parable of the great banquet, it's emphasizing the presence of God's kingdom uh, and the need to respond to its coming. So here, Jesus is now shifting to talking about what are the conditions for membership into the kingdom? Uh, we, we, we start to see the shift in Jesus' conversations actually going forward as he's making his way to Jerusalem. Instead of having uh, all these confrontations with Jewish leadership, which has seemed to be kind of the, the framework of many of our, I don't know, past like six or seven sermons it seems like, now Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for his departure. He knows that it's coming up ahead. So Jesus asks his followers to assess what does discipleship require. He wants them to be aware of what's required so that they can actually walk the full journey with him, which is ultimately ending on the cross. And so that's where I want us to start today, is to assess what is required of us to follow along in this journey. So a question I want you to think about is, are you willing to come to Jesus on his terms? We need to start with that, that question because the type of Christianity that we've adopted operates on coming to Jesus really on our own terms. When you look at how we encourage people to come to Christ, uh, you actually find terms and ideas that are, are really foreign to the New Testament. They're not actually in there. What do you have to do to become a Christian? Just follow the Roman road to Jesus. Uh, you have to believe the four spiritual laws. Maybe some of you guys have used that tract back in the day. You, you have to answer these questions right. You pray this prayer. You, you sign this card. You, you raise your hand at the end of uh, the camp speaker of the week or whatever uh, to declare your love for Jesus. Now, those are all great things. Those are good things to help us understand, you know, oh, do I want to actually believe Jesus, follow him? But none of those are things that Jesus actually requires of his disciples. He never says to do those things. Let's look at what Jesus says. Let's read Luke 14, 25 through 35. Jesus turns around to the crowds that are traveling with him, and he tells them, this are his terms, or these are his terms to be a follower of his. So Luke 14, 25 through 35. It says, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, so I want you to try to picture that you're following Jesus. He's walking, he stops and turns around, and he, he makes these statements. I mean, could you imagine that the teacher you've been following turns around and says, you need to hate your mom and dad. Like, how many of you are going to be like, what? wait, wait, what? This is not how this direction has been going so far. I'm supposed to hate my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, my wife, even my own children. I'm supposed to, to pick up a piece of equipment that's known for torture and give up everything I have to follow you. For most of us, I think Jesus loses us at the first sentence of you got to hate your family. I don't know how I would have responded if I was standing there and was told, hey, you got to hate Taylor and Olivia. That's just, that's, that's the opening cost to follow me. What's crazy is that this radical statement he's making, this isn't just for mature believers who are really digging into things and want to go deeper with Jesus. This is an introductory statement to be a follower of Jesus, okay? This is an evangelistic message that Jesus is preaching. How many of you have started with the gospel of, okay, first thing you got to do, hate your family, and then we can talk about loving Jesus. You ever sat down with someone at a coffee shop or on the plane ride next to you as the opening lines to getting someone to be a Christian? Probably not. This is what Jesus is doing. This is evangelistic in the crowd that he's talking to. Jesus is saying this to new people who want to follow him because for him, this is simple. These are basic truths when it comes to following him. This is where David Platt points out that our brand of Christianity has failed us because many of us would read these statements and say, well, can't you just be a believer but not actually be a disciple, right? Like, I'm saved, but I'm just not a disciple yet. I haven't called him Lord yet. Maybe that's something you've heard of. You need to be Lord of my life. Uh, there, there aren't levels to Christianity and how Jesus is laying this out. There isn't the, the, the dipping the toe into the water level where you believe, you get your salvation card, you know you're good to go with heaven. And then for others who really want to go deeper, then there's this better level of Christianity. That's where discipleship comes into play. Now, that's not to say that we're all at the exact same spiritual maturity in this room right now, or that where we were 20 years ago is the same spot we're at now. I hope we've matured in our faith over the last 20 years, for those of you who are at least 20. Uh, but what Jesus says three times is clear. If you don't do these things, you aren't my disciple. 
I mean, he's just making it cut and dry. This is a really hard passage to hear, okay? And I know that as we get into this, and I want you to know that I know that, and I feel that too, not as someone who's teaching this, but as someone who reads this as, as someone who professes to be a disciple of Jesus, okay? So we're all in the same boat there. But these are entry basic requirements to be a follower, and that makes this passage radical and so challenging because we've really tried to change the terms to make it easier for us. So we're going to break down this text, and I want you to think about, have I ever responded to Jesus on these terms of what he says here? As I said, this is an evangelistic text where Jesus is inviting people to follow him for the very first time. So this works if you're in this room and and you've never had a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're still trying to figure this out, or if you're someone who's been at this for 50 years of just every day trying to be a better follower of Jesus. Think about this. Have you responded to Jesus on these terms, on his terms? So the first term here is that Jesus requires superior love or supreme love. Uh, Luke 14, 26 is the first if then he cannot be my disciple statement, okay? He does, uh, he does three of these. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So I, that's bold. <laughs> Let's just put it out there. This is super bold. This is how Jesus is starting this, uh, this teaching session. But what, what does that mean? Uh, when we read this, I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, aren't I supposed to love my neighbor as myself and honor my parents? Like, I thought that's the whole point. How, why is Jesus talking about hate? I've never heard Jesus talk about hate before. It's a good question to ask. Let's get into that. Um, if you hold your place here, and if you want to flip back to Matthew 22, or I'll have it on the screen here, there's a couple passages in Matthew that shed light on what Jesus is saying here in Luke 14. Uh, Matthew 22 is this conversation that Jesus is having with an expert, uh, expert teacher in the law. And starting in Matthew 22:36, this teacher in the law asks Jesus this question: "Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Meaning, wh- which is the best, number one, foremost, primary? What do I have to focus on?" Uh, Jesus said to him, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment." And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus summarizes all of the Old Testament with loving God, vertical love, and love people, horizontal love, the people around us, right? So the primary first, best commandment. Does Jesus say love God with part of our hearts? Just a little bit? Enough to at least be saved? Enough to have your sins forgiven? No, he says all of your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Other passages use strength as well within there. This shows that uh, we can't prioritize our affections of God, then family, then friends, then whatever. Everything, all your affections, all your passions and love belong to God. And then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So when we love God supremely, that vertical love, then love for others flows out naturally from that. Uh, In Matthew 10, we, we just saw that love for God supersedes love for everything else. Matthew 10 is Matthew's same account of what's happening in Luke 14. It's just a little bit different version of how Matthew records what went down there that can help us understand what Jesus is saying in Luke 14. So Matthew 10, 37 says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, 
And whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So here Jesus is kind of making it easier in how Matthew records it and what he's saying. Here we see that Jesus says we cannot love our, our, our mother and father more than he does. And I think we, you know, add brothers, sisters, and wives onto that like we see in, in Luke 14. But in Luke 14, Jesus uses much stronger language, telling us to hate our family, even to hate ourselves. But he's using such strong wording to make his message clear to us. Our love for him needs to be so supreme, so absolute, that any other love we have in this world would look like hate in comparison to how much we love God. Do you see that, the difference there? It's not that we actually hate them. It's just that our love for God is so far beyond how do you even compare the two. Um, this doesn't, uh, it doesn't mean that I hate you or, you know, I pick who I like and don't like. No, we're still supposed to, to love everyone around us as those first and second greatest commandments are. But it means we should love Christ so above and beyond nothing else measures up. And it makes sense. If, if you're married, you think of your spouse uh, or if you're a parent and you think of your kids, you can understand this to some degree. I love Taylor, my wife, more than any of you in this room, okay? I'm sorry if this is like mind-blowing to some of you and you thought you were really high up. It's true. I love Taylor more than any of you. Do I hate any of you in this room? No, I don't hate any of you in this room. Uh, do I have favorite youth? Of course not. Why would you even question me on that? I'm a great youth pastor. You're all the same, right? But Taylor, I love way more. And so my love for you would look insignificant to how much I love my bride, right? That makes sense. And if that isn't the way I'm living, we got to get to some marriage counseling soon, but I think we're okay. That, that is how much I love her. Uh, likewise, the way I love Taylor shouldn't come close to measuring how I love Christ. And if I'm being honest, I fail in that sometimes. Sometimes I love Taylor or Olivia, my daughter, more than I love Jesus. That's like a I make them idols and gods in my life probably more than anything else in my life. And I bet a lot of you would fall into that same category when it comes to loving your family, to loving your spouse. Uh, husbands, something to just put out here, Ephesians 5.25 tells us that we should love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We can't relate to that kind of love until we love Jesus supremely then we know what it means to actually love our wives. So we've molded Christianity really into like begrudging obedience and not loving affection. We give up worldly desires and do what the Bible says just so we won't get in trouble. We don't want to get those lightning bolts from God when we mess up, right? But instead, if we submit to the supremacy of Christ and give him all that we have, we'll be so infatuated so drawn to him that our love for him will drive everything that we do. It changes how we view everything about our lives and the world around us. So what you need to ask yourself is, when you read this, like, do, do you really love Christ the way he's laying out our love is supposed to him is supposed, love for him is supposed to be? Do you desire Christ? Do you love him with, with all your heart and soul and mind? I'm not asking, do you come to church? Or do you read your Bible daily? Or do you pray? Or do you teach? Or do you do this or that? Or are you raising your kids the right way? That's not what he asks of us. Those are good things, but that's not what he asks. Do you love Christ? Is he the reason that you live? Is he the source of how you live? That's the superior love 
that makes all other love begin to look like hate. Here's, here's what the problem is. I can't remember if I've used this analogy in church. I know I've used it at youth group. Uh, just stick with me here, okay? We live our lives and, and what we love like a TV dinner, okay? So I think I have a picture of, of this. Okay, so classic TV dinner, right? Some of you are like, I could go for one right now. Other views are like having flashback to like PTSD memories of like, oh man, I remember we had to eat those all the time. Uh, you know how in TV dinners, right, there's a different section for the meat, the potatoes. Here on this one we have, looks like we've got the, some green beans and you always have that rock hard brownie that like, it, nothing cooks evenly on the TV dinner, right? Like the TV, you're just like chipping that brownie out when you're done with it. Well, that's what we do with our lives. We separate are alive into these different sections. We, we, uh, we love our spouse and our kids and our family and our friends and our job and our favorite sports team and our vacations and our house. And, and then one of the sections up there, maybe it's a bigger section than the other ones, probably not, is our love for God and what we're willing to do for him, right? So instead of a TV dinner, our life needs to be a chicken pot pie, right? Do I have a picture of a chicken? There's a chicken pot pie, right? Okay, stick with me. This, this is good. This is good stuff. Uh, in a chicken pot pie, everything is all mixed together, right? You got the meat. Let's see what's in this one. We got meat. We got the carrots, the potatoes, the peas. Uh, does that look like a dumpling or something? It looks like we got a dumpling or something in there. That looks good. And then what is coating everything inside of it? That delicious, glorious, fatty gravy, Right? Jesus needs to be the delicious, glorious, fatty gravy in our lives that's coating all aspect of our lives, right? He needs to be all over everything that we do, our, our spouses, our jobs, where we live, how we live our lives. He's the gravy that's holding it all together, right? This, is, this should have been, there should be First Jordan in here that talks about the gravy of, of Jesus. I'm actually, I actually stole this from a seminary professor. I can't remember which one it was, but this has stuck with me for like 10 years. Uh, Jesus needs to be in and around everything in our lives. He holds it all together. He's not put off to the side. He has supremacy. Uh, let me give you an example of, of a man who lived this out. There's this guy named John Bunyan. He was a preacher in the late 1600s. Really good preacher if you ever look up some of his sermons. Uh, he preached in England at a time when it was hard to be a follower of Christ, especially a preacher of the gospel. Bunyan uh, was warned if he didn't stop preaching, he, he's going to get thrown in jail. And he and his family were not that well off. They had a lot of kids, one of whom was blind. They barely had enough money and food to live on when he was a free man. And he knew if he got imprisoned, obviously this is going to really hurt his family. So did he stop? preaching when he's warned, hey, if you don't stop, you're going to throw it in jail. What would you do? I don't know what I would do. If I'm being honest in the moment, probably stop. Try to figure out something else, right? At least not so public so that I get thrown into jail. John Bunyan said, you keep preaching, and he got thrown in jail. And this is what he writes from his jail cell. It says some old English words in there, so just bear with me. The parting with my wife and poor, poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am fond of these great mercies, he's talking about his family and his children as his great mercies, but also because I have often brought to my mind the many hardships, 
miseries, and wants that my poor family is likely to be meeting with, especially my poor blind child who lay nearer to my heart than all I have besides. Oh, the thought of the hardship I have thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. But yet, I must venture all with God. Oh, I have seen in this condition, I am like a man pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children. Yet thought I, I must do it. I must do it. That's a guy who's considered the cost of discipleship and has kept going. Jesus requires superior love to the point that you're pulling down your house on your family and children. Does that sound like an evangelistic message you're going to preach to someone? No, but it's what he says, and these are basic requirements. So does he have it from you? If not, Jesus says you can't be his disciple. He goes on with his second term to be a disciple. In verse 27, he says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So the second requirement here is exclusive loyalty. Exclusive loyalty. To bear or, or carry his cross is, is uh, the heart of this. And it's, it's really uh, a misunderstood phrase in the New Testament. I've, I don't think we always use it the right way in our own lives. Often we think of carrying our cross as like something bad has happened to us whether it's a bad relationship, a mean boss, an illness, or an injury, it's our cross to bear. Maybe you've even said that, oh, this is just my cross to bear, or you've heard other people say that. Well, that's not how the people listening to Jesus would understand him, of this just being a cross to bear. They would understand that carrying a cross means you're a convicted criminal who's been punished to die, and now you have to carry the cross beam through town to receive public humiliation on the way to death. This would be awful to hear, but it really doesn't hit us the same way since we have crosses everywhere. You know, we got a cross there. You might be wearing a cross necklace. Your Bible probably has a cross on it. Like, the impact of the cross today is different than what it meant back then, right? Because we see the cross as a sign of salvation and redemption. Even trying to have a modern-day equivalent of, if you do not pick up your electric chair and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. I mean, it just doesn't, it's just not the same in how we think of it. Uh, the, the connotation of cruelty, torture, and hu- humiliation that comes with an electric chair, it, that's not really there. It's just like the electric chair, is, it just happens, it's done. The cross is very different of the public impact it has on you. The reality is, is with a cross, you, you are a dead man walking as you're going through town. You have no more dreams, no more plans for your life, no more ideas of what comes next for you. Everything is over. There's no more pride, no more honor, nothing. Everything you've known is done and over. Who wants to sign up for that? It's a basic requirement to follow Jesus. Again, Jesus uses this strong language here so that we recognize the cost. Everything we have is gone when we follow him. We've passed away. Everything we've ever wanted for ourselves is over and done so that we can find life through him and the cross. This is why in verse 26, he ends by saying, We have to hate our own lives, even. You have to if you're going to carry your cross and be dead to who you were. Galatians 2.20 says, uh, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer who I live, but Christ who lives in me. This means that the way that we, we used to live and what we used to live for, it's gone. And now we live in Christ and for Christ. Our entire identity is thrown away and is now placed in who he is. This changes 
not only our perspective, but our priorities. You, you don't determine where you live. Christ does. I lived in Kansas City, Missouri for seven years after thinking I would never leave the Northwest my entire life because I was called to do ministry in the Northwest and Northwest students. I was wrong about that one. I needed to go take a seven-year training session hiatus or whatever. I mean, there's good ministry that happened there for sure before the calling of being in the Northwest actually came to fruition. That wasn't my choice to make. That was God's. I, I'll be honest. I never would have lived in Missouri if God didn't send me there. Missouri's great, by the way. Amazing barbecue. I miss it very much. Uh, so I'm just thinking of my favorite ribs right now. I'm a little bit hungry. Um, so where you live, Christ figures that out. You don't determine what kind of job you have, Christ does. You don't determine the clothes you wear, the things you buy, the plans you make. You don't determine anything. Christ now determines everything. This is a challenge to give all authority in your life over to Jesus. And so he uses two illustrations, starting in verse 28, to help explain it. First, he calls us workers constructing a building. Now, the first thing you do as a builder, I've never built anything in my life, though, but it makes sense to do, you estimate the cost of how much it's going to be to actually put this thing up, right? You don't just start building and not know how much it's going to cost. It's going to end very quickly for you. Jesus is warning us against hasty decisions to follow him. He's telling us that we need to understand the cost of being his disciple. Now, that's not normally how we attract people with evangelism, but here Jesus is going radical. He's going a little bit bold, a little bit crazy and saying, this is going to be tough. This is what you have to do. It's going to take exclusive loyalty to him. John Stott, uh, an amazing preacher and author, who I'm pretty sure I quote in every sermon I've ever done, just because I like him so much. This is how John Stott puts it about this. The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They've allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. Man, I love that line. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. Man, preach it, John, stop. That's American Christianity. Half-built towers from people who don't realize that it costs everything to follow Jesus. How sad to start construction and not have the money to finish. All of us probably know building projects that, that started up, but they're still sitting there, not completed because the funds ran out. I bet there's some ingression. Maybe, maybe you've started one in your backyard of like, I'm really going to finish this indoor or this outdoor pool and it's not done yet. I don't know. What a waste to have a half a building. What good is that to anybody? Jesus drives the point home by picturing passersby that are just pointing at and ridiculing the person who tried this project. He's calling them a fool. In other words, moving towards successful discipleship, it takes reflection. It's not an automatic ex uh, ex exercise. There's no positive testimony in a walk with God that is abandoned because the cost has not been properly considered. Rather, it is tragic. He then uses a second illustration. 
a king assessing his strength in preparation for war. Now, what king would go to war outmanned? You're not going to do that, right? I'm sure you've all conducted many wars in your lives, so this is familiar to you. But wouldn't a king first sit down and consider if his 10,000 warriors can beat his opponent's 20,000? And if he realizes he can't win, what they would do back then is you would uh, send a delegation and negotiate peace so that you don't have a battle where all of your army gets slaughtered because there's no way you're going to win. Like, why would you do that? You just, all right, let's figure out peace terms. Maybe I'll, I'll, okay, I'll agree. You can take this land if I can still keep this or whatever. Similarly, says Jesus, those who want to be his disciples need to make this same type of calculation. A person needs to negotiate peace with God. He or she has two options. One, they can go their own way, with the result being taking a stand against God, bold way to go, or two, they can take a wiser approach by coming to terms of peace with God on, on the Lord's gracious terms, not on our terms, on his terms. The second option means giving God his due, saying, I'm going to follow you, that you're the one that's actually in charge here. God desires disciples fully aligned with him. The giving up of everything means recognizing that God has claims on all areas of our lives. Part of discipleship is learning from God uh, what he desires in these areas. No one can know at the start of the walk everything involved, but one can enter the journey with an understanding that God has access to all that we are. Third requirement. So he requires superior love, exclusive loyalty, and Jesus requires total loss. In verse 33, he says, So therefore, any of one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus makes this one pretty clear. We need to give up everything. And give up here literally means to, uh, to say goodbye to, to relinquish, to abandon, to renounce. If we want to follow Christ, then we give up everything that we have. Not some things, all things. For me, this is, is the most convicting and challenging point because I know I give up a lot of things for Jesus, but do I let him really have reign over everything? If I'm being honest, no, or at least not all the time. Only what I'm comfortable with. And I think most of us do that too. What about our houses, our cars, our clothes? Do we give up everything? Uh, our TVs, our way too big DVD collections, our iPhones, all this stuff we surround ourselves with? Do we say that everything is yours for the sake of the lost? Use my investments, my checking account, yours for the sake of the poor. What do I spend my time on? Do I, do I first give that to you and your priorities? Or do I put you down the list, at maybe number three or number seven? All of it is yours to use for the sake of your glory in whatever way you deem best. It's all yours. Do we say that? Do we think that? Do we believe that? This radically changes our possessions when we're willing to give up everything. In Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16, we get a picture of what Jesus is saying here in Luke 14. Uh, Hebrews was written to the Jews who had become Christians, who were undergoing some serious persecution, and chapter 11 is famously known as the Hall of Faith chapter. It's the recounting of all these saints who God saved because of their faith, and then their stories are told as an encouragement to those who are uh, who are currently struggling and need to keep the faith. Let me read Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But but as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I love that line in there of God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because these were people who were looking forward to the city God was preparing for them, ultimately their place in heaven. They didn't care about their country on earth because they knew that there was something so much greater and better that was waiting for them. Abraham and Sarah talked about earlier in chapter 11 and about how they were willing to live the place that they knew as home to go to a land they've never been to. Why did they do that? Because they knew everything belonged to God, they knew God wanted them to go, and so they went. We're so consumed by the stuff in our culture, how willing are we to throw it all away because, God, because we know God has something better? We need to stop finding satisfaction in our stuff. Um, sorry, I lost my spot. How is that different than one we're trying to witness to? Think of it like this. We have stuff. They have stuff. We all have stuff. If we're consumed with our stuff, how are we any different than that person who needs to know about Jesus and there's something so much better than what this world has to offer? Christianity says we don't want and we aren't defined by our stuff. We want and are defined by him. Now, my application here isn't for you to go home and get rid of everything you own, all right? If God is putting that on your heart to do so, that's great. I don't know if he's actually doing that with any of you in this room. Maybe he is. That's for you and God to figure out, but I I challenge us to pray, to ask for discernment of what he does want of you. What we need to realize is, as hard as it is to grasp, if Christ did call us to give up our stuff, um, our time, where we live, our job, whatever, that's not a sacrifice. Why would it be a sacrifice if what we receive in Christ is so much more than what we gave up? With the supremacy of Christ in our lives, the requirement of total loss is, isn't a sacrifice, it's a reward. We're trading in what doesn't matter now for what actually matters for eternity. The problem is we're so ingrained and so conditioned to fulfill the American dream of I gotta have more, 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 that this this might be the toughest requirement of all for the majority of us. The great part about these sacrifices as a Christian, though, is that Christ demonstrates them for us in the perfect way to help us. Jesus requires superior love, but really, Jesus' love for us is more superior than anything else. He demonstrates his love for us by dying for our sins, by taking the punishment for them so that we wouldn't have to. He loves us, we love him. He's the only one worthy of such love. Not our father, mother, husband, wife, brother, sister, child, Christ alone is worthy of superior love because he is supremely loving. That is what we are created for. And not just love, but Jesus is supremely loyal. He'll never leave us or forsake us. His promises are true. We don't have to worry about the sacrifices of giving up our plans, dreams, and hopes because to live in his plans, dreams, and hopes for our lives is superior. Our creator knows what he's doing. Because of that, we can trust him and know that he will be faithful to us. You trade your plans for your life for your creator's plans for your life. 
That's an incredible deal that none of us deserve. And we can meet the requirement of total loss because we have a Savior who lost everything on our behalf. He lost everything for us so that He can be our reward when we give up everything for Him. We lose everything for Him because only Christ can truly satisfy us both in this life and in the next life as the only way of salvation. Now, as we break down this passage, you might be thinking like, this is like, this is really tough. This is a lot more than I thought I was signing up for. Uh, I don't know if I can do this, and why would I want to? Whereas a C.S. Lewis quote, um, this might be my favorite C.S. Lewis quote that I think speaks to this. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. That's our issue. We think we have things figured out with our houses and stuff and plans and desires and being safe and secure in our lives. We're playing, though, with just mud pies in the slums. We're kind of going to do that at Messy Games in a minute here. Uh, when there's an offer of a holiday, a vacation at the sea. I would rather go to a vacation at the sea than hang out in a mud pit and make pies. That's just me personally, maybe not for you. Well, let's give up the things of this world and pursue Christ on his terms. Don't come to Jesus how you'd like to, only giving him control of certain things and making compromises on others. We need to radically turn our lives to him. Give him superior love, exclusive loyalty, and total loss, and receive the blessing, the reward, and the fulfillment that comes from the supremacy of Christ. And when we weigh the cost of discipleship, when we consider what it means to follow Jesus and see that the cost is worth it because the reward of life with him and forgiveness of sins is so much greater, we still need to be on guard that we don't fall back into those patterns of checking boxes, like I said at the beginning. And so in verses 34 and 35, Jesus issues a final warning to his disciples using the picture of salt. When you read this, you're like, why is this salt thing in here? It actually ties into what he's talking about here. Salt is valuable and useful as long as it continues to be salty, right? That makes sense. If salt isn't salty, it's just a white cube rock mineral. Mineral, right? I took geology. Uh, In this part of the world, when Jesus is talking, salt could maintain its saltiness for up to 15 years, which is crazy. Maybe some of you have salt in the back of your pantry that's 15 years old, like, oh, I forgot we had that one. I don't know, but that seems like a long time to me. Whether it was used as a type of seasoning or, or, or to preserve meat, again, it was only useful if it was salty. If it lost its saltiness, its purpose for being, it was thrown away. And that's why he calls us to hear what he says at the end here. Discipleship takes dedication and focus, and God is concerned how his disciples walk. Different eras involve different walks, since not everyone is called to suffer, as many Christians did uh, in the early centuries. But those differences do not change the call to be a faithful disciple. Jesus wants everyone on the journey, uh, wants to bring everyone on the journey, uh, the understanding of what it requires and to determine to stay on the path every step of the way. So if we're people who claim to be disciples of Jesus, but there's nothing in our lives that shows that we've been radically changed, that we see the world differently, that 
we, we don't hold on to our possessions, that we love God and others the way that he's loved us, then we're salt that's lost its saltiness, is what he's saying. We're worthless. Salt that goes bad isn't even good enough to throw on soil or manure piles. This leads me to believe Jesus hung out with teenagers because it's a poop joke. Uh, what good? What good is a disciple if who hasn't been transformed and is more loyal to their family, their job, their bank account, or their country? They aren't. There's no worth there. The disciple who hasn't counted the cost and and followed it, it isn't helping to spread the message the seasoning of the gospel, they're actually harmful to the message. May we not be disciples who harm the kingdom of God instead of leading others into it. The problem of choosing Jesus was a lot harder to make then than it is now. In Jesus' time, and in the early generations after him, to decide to follow Jesus usually meant facing rejection, ridicule, and possibly death, for many of them death. No one decided to embrace Jesus casually. Today, many people assume they're Christians uh, because they live in a a culture, a country grounded in Judeo-Christian roots. And though there might be some who are hostile to believers, this is not the same world that followers uh, were living in when Jesus first taught this message. Of course, though, the call of this text is the same. Discipleship requires that Jesus be given primary, supreme allegiance. The Lord wants to have priority in every area of life. Figuring out how this works in life, it takes interaction with God's word, prayer, involvement in a healthy community that helps you along on your walk, and listening to God through all the means he makes available to his disciples. That aspect of the call is timeless. But we need to remember, too, that the call of discipleship is a lifelong journey. People grow in their understanding and application of what giving Jesus a primary role in their lives means. Most of us know that, that God is constantly changing our lives for himself. We, we continue to discover uh, new areas of our lives that need attention as we apply ourselves to the areas that he's already addressed. We never completely arrive as disciples in this life. We're always on the road, always on the path with God until we get to that that city he's prepared for us. But unfortunately, we can be slow in giving control to him. Yet Jesus is is not teaching that we must be perfect in order to come to him and to be saved. It's very important that you understand that. That is not what he's saying here. Salvation is by grace, a free gift we don't deserve. And the gifts he gives us are the resources that make it possible and enable us to be what he calls us to be. We don't fix our faults so that we can find his favor. I feel like that's the checking boxes thing. Instead, we turn to him so that he can begin the work of renovation that he wishes to work in our lives. In a real sense, a disciple, another word for that is just learner, is a person under constant renovation. A good disciple recognizes that renovation is never done. Chip and Joanna Gaines can't fix this, right? It's, It's just constantly going. He or she also recognizes that sometimes renovation means tearing down before building up something fresh and new. The rebuilding that God does, if I'm being honest, it's not always easy. It's not always pleasant. But like the goal of renovation, what emerges is so much better than what was there at the start. 
the hope of that transformation is what makes the cost of discipleship worth the journey. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you and, uh, I mean, I'll confess on my own part, I don't always love you supremely and give you exclusive loyalty and, and give everything up for you. That uh, my own pride, my own selfish desires, the world around me makes it difficult to fully buy in all the time and what it means to be a follower of you. But God, I thank you that you continue to work in us and through us. You are patient and kind with us as we go on this journey, as we try to um, be the salt that's spreading around the world that is showing that there's so much more than what this life has to offer. Lord, there might be people in this room who have never made a decision to follow you. And if, if we read just this passage, man, it sounds tough to do it. But in comparison to what you've done for us, of dying on the cross for our sins, of, of stepping into our place and, and, and taking the punishment we deserve so that we don't have to face that, you're the one that's really borne the cost. And we just are, are, are reaping the rewards of, uh, of your supreme love for us. God, I pray that you'd help us to understand that, that we uh, wouldn't take for granted what you've done, that we would... Um, understand how great the need is for us to be made right with you, that we're like kings preparing for war and recognize uh, we don't have a shot against you, but you graciously are willing to say, that's okay. Let's have peace. I love you. I've already got this figured out. God, if there's someone in this room who's not yet done that, I pray that they would or would start to uh, talk to me or, or someone they came with about what it means to, to actually put their faith in you. For those of us who are disciples in this room, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, open our hearts, convict us maybe of areas of, of things that we might be holding on to. Um, we're not called to be perfect because we know that's not possible, but um, we are, are called to be more like you and, and to, con to continue in this path and this journey. And so I pray you'd bring others alongside us to help us in that. Um, I pray that we would, um, we would seek you and, and understand you in and, and, and just such a a better and glorious way that just our desire truly is for you and who you are. Um, God, I pray that Gresham Bible Church, that Gresham, that Oregon, that America, that we would be a people that are known for being those who truly, really, deeply love you and have been changed and transformed by you. Uh, help us to be different than the world around us. Help us to be examples to those who need your love. Uh, and help us just to be... Uh, transformed daily, radically, by what you've done for us. Praise, thanks for Jesus' name. Amen.